for us, it deserves and demands that we listen, that we pay attention, doesn't it? In the Old Testament, God sent messengers. Actually, the word angels means messenger. And whenever God, when heaven would send a messenger, an angel, it would frighten people and people would listen. They would pay attention because uh, it was something dramatic. A lot of times people were scared. So when they showed up, they had to say, don't be afraid. And if they tried to worship, bow down to an angel, they would say, don't worship me, you know, don't worship me. Don't worship the messenger. Worship the one that sent me is what they basically said. And then we know from scripture, now, not just from uh, Moses's relaying the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, but it does say that uh, angels were the ones who like helped do the work of delivering the law to Moses. And so angels had this high position in people's thoughts. They had this high position in people's spiritual lives. They looked at angels as being representatives of God and also had this special place all throughout their history here. And what we saw last week is that Jesus Christ is much greater than angels. And so when God's words come to us by his son, we have got to pay attention. We'd be foolish not to pay attention, right? And so the author of Hebrews just spent the last 10 verses opening up the Old Testament scriptures to show like this is what you know about angels to be true and this is about Jesus, so Jesus is greater. And then he takes a break and then these first, these, uh, first four verses of, the, of chapter 2 he takes a break to give an application or a warning. And it's one of those unique things about the book of Hebrews that's different than books like Ephesians or Colossians. When Paul writes those letters, he like spends half the book giving like theology and then half the book giving application. And sometimes it'll even say, therefore, and then he goes on and explains what all this means, what the application is for all this stuff. You know, It's like he does half and then half. Well, here in Hebrews, the author does something different. He like intersperses warnings and application and then he'll get back on track. So he'll be teaching and then he'll take a break and say, therefore, and then give some application and then he'll get back to where he was before. So there's no long rabbit trails like Paul kind of does in the book of Romans. There's no long rabbit trails. He went, he'll go off a little bit of the path and then he'll get back on and then he'll start teaching what he was teaching before. And so I, I kind of like that way how he interrupts his flow in order to give a practical application and then that practical application stimulates more teaching, which we'll, we'll talk about next week. Well, that's why in chapter 2, verse 1, it begins with the word, therefore. And whenever you see the word, therefore, in Scripture, you have to ask yourself, what's it there for? You have to read, and it says, therefore. You don't start out by looking at therefore. You back up and say, well, what's it there for? Well, like I said, he just thought about angels and now he says, therefore, or your Bible might say, for this reason, for this reason. In other words, because of what I had said, now, pay attention, right? It's a connecting word. It connects chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 was about the teaching about Jesus' superiority above the angels and about his kingly reign. And now there's a warning. There's some practical application. And then, like I said, there's these breaks these warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews. We're going to see this five more times where he breaks and gives a warning to his listeners. And the big idea of today is actually right there in verse 1. And in your bulletins it says, uh, it's a summary, but in verse 1 he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Or to summarize it in your bulletins, I put, stay anchored to Christ so you will not drift. 
Stay anchored to Christ so you will not drift. And so let's unpack this warning statement before moving on to the rationale behind it. And as I said, it comes right after this comparison with angels. And he gives this force behind it. It's it's a moral necessity. We ought to pay attention. We should pay attention. We've got to pay attention, he says. We've got to do this. And he, he says we, not you, but like he's including himself in this warning as well. And the the term translated pay attention here frequently had the general sense of of giving heed to something important, like beware or attend to, or in some versions it's translated as hold firmly. And it's used in conjunction with that verb to drift away. And again, here we have another word that's not used in any other part of the Greek New Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, That word drift away was used in Proverbs 3.21, which says, My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And so the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament said the word drift away there was don't lose sight of these things. When it was used in other ancient writings, this word, it meant to slip or slip by, as in like water seeping out of a container. However, the word literally means by and flow. It's a conjunction. Is that right? There's two words put together. By and flow. So putting these two verbs together in the same sentence, and we can see how the author is using nautical or sailing language here to make a point. We know later on in Hebrews chapter 6, he uses the image of an anchor. But here, the word picture here is of a sailing vessel needs to be securely tied to a dock so it doesn't slip away. Have you ever spent any time on water or had this happen to you? Maybe you were floating in the ocean on an inflatable tube or like a little robo or something. Or maybe you're relaxing in the sun out, you know, if you've ever been to the beach, you've ever been to the ocean, you go out, you're floating, or, and then you look up and you realize that you're 100 yards away from your camp, right? Everybody else from your family's up on the shore and you're like, how did I get way over here? You know, you're just enjoying the sun there. Or maybe you've been fishing and you go to tie your boat up on a dock. And I'll tell you, it doesn't matter how big the boat is. I've seen this done on the Gateway Clipper. I've seen them take big ropes and they get near the dock and they wrap it 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 up a whole bunch of times. And why do they do this? It doesn't matter whether it's a small boat or a big boat. If you don't tie it up, it's going to float away. It's going to float away. And it could be a big ship like the Gateway Clipper. Pretty soon it's going to float away from the dock, floating down the Monongahela. It's going to be on the Ohio River soon, right? If they just kind of like threw it up on shore and be like, and eh, that's good, let's go to lunch, they're going to come back and there ain't going to be no boat there. Because things drift. Things drift away, even if it's a little rowboat. If you don't tie it up, it's going to drift. And I love that illustration that the author of Hebrews is using here. Because what do we learn from that? Well, first of all, drifting can happen very easily. And he's not saying that it's a hurricane, right? He's not saying a hurricane picks up the boats and throws them onto shore. He's saying that if you just casually throw a rope onto shore or just wrap it around loosely once, it's going to slowly and loosely undo itself. And little by little, you might think nothing has changed, but it's going to drift. Secondly, it, it doesn't happen all at once. Again, it's almost imperceivable when the rope starts to come untied. It's not a jerk. It's not like a force. 
It, it doesn't happen all at once either. It happens little by little over time. These kind of things take place. If you're a, a captain of a ship out on the ocean and you're following a path to go to a certain way, you got to have to stay on the path. And if you veer off just one little degree, one little degree off the path, it might not seem like much. But there's a rule on the ocean, there's a rule on navigation called the 60 to 1 rule. And that means that over 60 miles, you're going to be a whole mile off course. That means if you were like sailing from, I don't know, like America to, to England, you are going to be off by 50 miles by the time you get there. And you might say, well, what's one little degree? You can't even notice it. Yes, one little degree doesn't seem like much, but over the long haul, you're going to be way far away from your destination. And thirdly, notice how drifting happens so easily. A person doesn't have to do anything to drift away. A boat in the ocean or even a large lake has to be anchored if it doesn't want to drift. Drifting naturally occurs. Drifting naturally occurs. We have to be aware in our own spiritual lives when we are likely to drift as well because it can happen easily. And one doesn't have to do anything to drift away except do nothing because drifting happens. And this is the warning that the author of Hebrews is telling his listeners. This is the warning that we need to hear today. Christians, in order to avoid drifting, he says, pay attention, hold firmly to what you have heard. Listen, he says. And when he says listen, when the scripture talks about listening, it's not like letting things go in one ear and out the other. When scripture talks about hearing, it means spiritually hearing. It involves believing, obeying, and submitting to what we have heard. Right hearing is more than a matter, a function of the ear. It's more of a matter of the heart. And our, our author here, he gives a grounding or a reasoning for these, this warning like he, he starts out and says, therefore, what you've just heard about Jesus and about he's greater than the angels and he's in this high exalted position. And then he says, but listen, drifting will happen in your life. So hold firmly to what you know. Hold firmly to what you have heard. And then he says, for, and then he gives a grounding for what he had just said. Right there in verse two. And he does this by using a lesser to greater argument or a lighter to heavier argument. It's an argument that was well known in that time, and we see it all through Scripture, where they'll say, if one thing is like this, then the greater thing is like this, so that we could understand. This is a, this is a concept of, of reasoning that was used in Greek reasoning. We still see it today and use it today as well. And he begins by saying, look, the lesser thing, though, in his, his, uh, his little analogy here is the law. And it's like, whoa, okay, listen to who he's talking to, right? He's talking to Hebrew Christians. They really knew the law. They believed the law. The law was given by these angels to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was a foundation of their whole lives. So in his illustration, this is the lesser thing. This is the lighter thing is the law. Kind of crazy to think about, isn't it? But he says the greater thing is the gospel. That is the heavier thing. That is the more weighty matter is the gospel. That's what he compares it to. In other words, he says, if the law is like this, imagine the gospel message is like this. To emphasize his point. And we know that he's talking about the law because of the phrase right here that it, the message was declared by angels. Like I said in Deuteronomy 32, I mean 33 verse 2, 
it alludes to the fact that the law came to Moses on Mount Sinai by the ministrations of the angels. Stephen, in his famous sermon in Acts chapter 7, he referred to Moses as being with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to us. That's from Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's speech. And the angels delivered many messages on behalf of the Lord Yahweh. And each of these messages was legally binding. And that's when he says that the message is reliable. That's a legal word that he uses there. It can also be translated as valid or steadfast. It's firm. According to the law, every transgression or violation comes with a just penalty. That's the logic of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. Deuteronomy 30.19 summarizes this principle. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you, may, that you and your offspring may live. That was the summary that Moses gave to his people after he had given them the law. He said, here it is before you. The message is simple. You obey, you live, you disobey, you die. That is just. And they all agreed to it. They did agree and say, this is just. God is just and his law was just. It's, and it's a, it was good. And in verse 3, speaking of the law, he also emphasized the two types of sin which lead to punishment. He says there is transgression and disobedience. Transgression is a deliberate stepping over the line. These are called sins of commission. Whenever you know what sin is, but you do it anyway, right? Knowing God's law, knowing it is sin, and intentionally breaking God's law. But it also includes disobedience, which is shutting your ears to the commands of God. I mean, that's what he says, uh, uh, disobedience. That's sins of omission. That means not wanting to hear God's rules so that you can disobey them. Or not doing what God commands. You can sin in either way. So that's why he says transgression or disobedience. Committing these sins means that you are just as guilty before God. You can break the Ten Commandments by lying or killing, but you also break God's commandments when you fail to honor your parents or not keep the Sabbath. Guilt is guilt, and that's why God shows in his law, which is just, and we all agree it is just and right. Guilt is guilt, and if you've broken one part of God's law, then you've broken all of God's law. If that is fair, and we all agree that it is fair and just before a holy God, then he says, how much more guilty will you be if you neglect, he says, such a great salvation? Salvation through faith alone in Jesus Christ. You will not escape, he says. This is a great salvation. Don't ignore, the, don't ignore this. And how do we know it's such a great salvation? How do we know it's so great? Well, first of all, it was declared first by the Lord, he says. Jesus proclaimed it first. He eagerly taught all those who would listen to the message. And he was welcoming of everyone who would come and hear and respond to the salvation message. The angels gave the law. Well, they were part of the giving of the law and ultimately, of course, came from God in heaven. But Jesus served and acted as a mediator of the gospel. The good news of salvation comes from the Lord. In 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for many. 
as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It was first of all preached by the Lord Jesus. Secondly, it was attested or confirmed by those who heard. This is referring to the apostles. They spread the message wherever they went, and their words carried authority because they had been with Jesus and because he had given them the rule of apostle. One example from church history of how important it was what the, what the, the apostles, you know, the disciples, the apostles taught, one example from church history is the church father. His name was Polycarp, and he was a student of the apostle John. Well, one of his students was a man named Arrhenius who did a lot of writing. And in his writings, Arrhenius said that he listened whenever Polycarp was talking. And he said, I wrote everything down, not on paper, but on my heart. Because these words were trustworthy. The sayings were true. And it was attested by those who had heard. Thirdly, the gospel was also confirmed by God the Father himself through signs and wonders and various miracles. Miracles don't exist for their own sake. They do not ultimately point to themselves. Instead, miracles attest and validate God's major works in redemptive history. In the New Testament, miracles confirmed the truth and identity of Jesus Christ. And then finally, he mentions that of gifts by the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That attested also to the truth of the gospel and the superiority of the message that was um, delivered by the angels. And again, the author of Hebrews here, he helps us to strip away our misunderstandings of why spiritual gifts exist. Spiritual gifts are not an end of themselves to be used for our own personal gain or private enjoyment. Spiritual gifts build up the church. They edify the church and they testify that Jesus Christ is Lord. As Paul explains in Ephesians 4.8, Christ has ascended on high and now with all authority in heaven showers gifts on his church. Gifts within the church bear witness to Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord and to the superiority of the new covenant over the old. And so he says these four things give weighty testimony to the gospel message of a great salvation in Jesus Christ. And to those who hear and respond to that message. And so... I ask you the question that the author of the Hebrews is asking his first listeners. If the word of the law was so binding that every infraction was punished, then how much more accountable are those who have heard the word directly from Christ's lips, plus the confirmation of eyewitnesses, plus the testimony of miracles, signs, and, and spiritual gifts? How would you escape if you neglect such a great salvation, he says? If you drift he warns. What causes you to drift today? Well, the first warning that I would give to be all of those who are listening is not to have stopped up ears that aren't listening at all. The author is writing to believers here, but maybe you think you are a believer. Maybe you've never truly repented of your sins, and maybe you're playing a game trying to fool other people or you're even fooling yourself. But deep down, you know that you are depending on yourself for your salvation. And you're still trying really hard to get God to accept you. Or you're lying to yourself and saying, well, you know, I know that a lot of Christians, or maybe even the Bible says that such and 
a thing of sin or something is a sin, but I, I don't really think it's that big of a deal. And you, bottom line is you think you're good enough. The reality is what he says here is that judgment is real. Uh, look at the law. Look at all the times in the, in the Bible when God dealt with the sins of his people fairly. And at times it was immediate death. And you might say, well, that's not fair. And why would God do that? You know, just for stealing or lying? Why would somebody die because of that? Because God wanted people to see that the wages of sin is death. And he wanted to make it very clear. And so don't ignore a call to repentance. Ignoring is rejecting. If you decide that you don't want to decide about giving your life to the Lord, well, that's deciding to reject him. The consequences of neglecting a message are related to the, to the majesty of the one who's giving the message. It's like in Matthew chapter 22, there's a story that Jesus tells about a king who threw a party for his son's wedding, but none of the invited guests wanted to come to the party. They just blew him off. Well, it's insulting and rude to the giver of the party. Charles Spurgeon said, one need not go to the trouble of despising salvation or resisting it or opposing it. One can be lost readily enough by simply neglecting it. In fact, the great mass of those who perish are those who neglect the great salvation. And so, don't neglect your opportunity to be saved today. But again, this was written to Christians, right? It was written to the Hebrew Christians as a warning to not slip away. A little change here, a little change there. And before a Christian realizes it, they're very far from where they had once been. And the reality is, is that departure from the faith usually comes from slow drifting and not sudden departure. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, he said, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? In other words, a lot of people who have left their, left their faith, he said, it's not like there was one event, you know, it wasn't like somebody argued them out of it. It was just a little by little by little, and they were drifting away. And it could be, you know, years of, of so-called walking with Christ. It could be, oh, I made a decision for the Lord when I was in high school, but, you know, I kind of, you know, that was a long time ago, and, you know, life, you know, whatever, it's been a long time, and it, it's just not that important anymore, Right? Honestly, I would say to that person, were you ever saved to begin with? Did it even mean anything to you then? Have you forgotten? Or maybe you thought you heard it all already. You know, oh, nothing to hear at church today. God, Jesus, blah, 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 blah. You know, I've heard it all the same thing before. And you think you know it all. You think you've heard it a million times and you might be so mature. But in reality, you're just showing your immaturity. Or it could be the pressure of society. You know, remember Jesus' story about the parable of the sower and the seeds, and there were plants that grew up but got choked down, right? And maybe it's just everything else is just piling on, and it's causing you to make little decisions and slip away little by little because it's becoming harder and harder to publicly represent your beliefs in Jesus Christ. I know people who have lost jobs because of what they believe, not because they weren't good workers, but because of what they believe. And it's easier to let things slide, to let things slip away. Or it could be that our busy lives have got the better of us. 
And we've let other things, less important things, take their place and take center stage in our life. Because the truth is, is you can always find a reason to not pray or read your Bible or go to church. But ignoring those things will cause you to drift, where he says, from such a great salvation. So please listen to the warning from the writer of Hebrews this morning. Listen to God's word speaking to you today. I mean, I worry about people who tell me, oh, I'm fine, when in reality, they're slipping away. And so he stops and says, pay attention, take heed, beware. I mean, he can't use any stronger language than he's trying to do to people, giving them a picture, giving them this warning, saying, I don't want you to neglect such a great salvation. I don't want you to drift. You know, I want to emphasize what the writer of Hebrews, what scripture is emphasizing today as well, to recognize the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And to hear what he is speaking to us today. Let me end with a little story from a a composer. He wrote the song we just finished singing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. His name was Robert Robinson. And he was actually converted under the preaching of George Whitfield. So this was like a hundred and some years ago. George Whitfield was a famous preacher, well-known, I mean, drew large crowds outdoors preaching to people. Many people had come, uh, had accepted Christ uh, through his preaching. And one of these persons was a guy named Robert Robinson who wrote this song called Come Thou Fount. But you know what happened to this guy who wrote that song? He began to drift. He began to drift and he drifted from the Lord. He had been greatly used by God as a pastor, but he neglected spiritual things and it led him astray. And, and later on in life, after he had left everything behind, he wanted to find peace and he began to travel. And during one of his travels, one of, one of his trips, he met a young woman who was evidently very spiritually minded. And she talked to him and she opened up a hymn and said, what do you think of this hymn I've been reading? And she handed him the book and he looked down and it was his own hymn. And he tried to avoid the question, but it was hopeless because he knew that it was the Lord speaking to him. And so finally he broke down and confessed who he was and how he had been living away from the Lord. And she said, look at what you wrote though. These streams of mercy are still flowing. And she assured him, and through her encouragement, this man was restored to fellowship with the Lord. Because it doesn't matter how far you drift, the Lord is abundant in mercy. Streams of mercy never ceasing, we just sang. So it's easy to drift with the current, but it is difficult to return against the stream. But remember the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel message that our salvation was purchased at a great price. And it begins with great promises and blessings, and it ends with a great inheritance and glory. How can we neglect it? Perhaps you have been drifting in your spiritual life as well. Perhaps you will admit that your love for God's word and for the Lord is not what it once was. Remember, you have a great salvation purchased by a great Savior. And so return to him and return to his grace and return to his word and you will experience those streams of mercy once more.